Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on CagesidePress.com. I'm Daniel Gumby Freeland, joined as always by my co-host, Shockwave Dave Tremonte. UFC is now in Jacksonville this weekend. That's right, not in Vegas this weekend, not on Fight Island, in Jacksonville, Florida this weekend for UFC 261. An absolute banger of a pay-per-view card with three title fights at the top. Me and Shockwave will, of course, be breaking down each and every one of those title fights as long as you're listening. Also, get in on our parlay and our underdog of the week as part of our Fights, Dogs, and Parlay segment where we give you all of those picks in a nice, tight breakdown. So, in addition to listening to that, you've also come to this show to know and love the interviews, and we're giving you two from UFC 261. First, I'll be talking to Tristan Connolly as he gets ready for his bout in a really long layoff. He's been out of commission for 18 months. He previously fought up at welterweight. He's going all the way down to featherweight for this one. He talks about why that is and how he feels going into that weight cut. Plus, I'll also be talking to Jeff Molina, who's gone through a whole bunch of fight cancellations and some crazy stuff after winning his contract on the Contender Series. He talks about getting ready for a bout against a guy who's kind of a little bit of an unknown in a fighter coming out of China. How exactly he prepares for, you know, very little film with that. So we're going to be talking to both of those guys. You're going to want to tune in. But before we get to any of that great content, i got to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Better Than Vegas. Better Than Vegas is the home for the avid sports better, providing insights, analysis, and free betting picks. It's like YouTube for sports betting. Head on over to betterthan.vegas, because from there, you can browse, search, and follow handicappers and sports personalities as they give you their thoughts on the upcoming sports contests. And they do it in every sport imaginable. That's right, you can find every sport on Better Than Vegas, including MMA, where you can get mine and Shockwave's Dave's picks on the Top Turtle MMA page. So make sure to head on over to betterthan.vegas right now, subscribe to our page, and hey, if you've got something to say, start your own account. But you got to do so at betterthan.vegas. Better Than Vegas brings you this episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast, and it starts right now. The hosts are ready. The fighters are ready. Listeners, make some noise if you are ready. For Top Turtle MMA with Shockwave and Gumby. Alright, and joining me today is Tristan Connolly, who fights Pat Sabatini at UFC 261 on April 24th. So Tristan, I want to start with your UFC debut. I know it was a while ago now, but that fight with Michelle Pereira, you're a last second fill-in. He comes in with like the most insane style anybody's ever seen. You know, obviously a lot of things going through your head during that fight. What what was sort of like the the forefront of your thoughts as you're dealing with a guy doing backflips and cartwheels, you know, up a weight class from where you usually are on like 6 days notice? Uh well, 5 days notice. <laughs> uh, well, I was going through my head. I honestly just just fight. I I don't know. I the, the people put things on a pedestal. They they uh, from the outside they see. You know, there's a, there's it's almost like there's a lot of distraction and fluff. But for me in the fight and in every fight, it, it, it's just worrying about the fight. Uh, and a move is a move. Like I, it would have been weird if I had watched all of his tape and he had just been a nice, tight boxer, you know, kept a low base and uh, and then started flipping. That would have really thrown me. I'm not gonna lie. But the 
fact of the matter is he's done way crazier stuff in all of his fights. So it was, it's predictable. I mean, when it, it's predictably unpredictable, right? So I, I knew to expect all this flashy stuff. And, and I also knew on top of that, being a lightweight coming in on short notice, that he was going to, uh, I, I had no question in mind that he was going to just, that's just going to add fuel to the fire, right? Like he, whatever he would normally do, you know, put 20% on that, and he's going to put that on top of that. So I, I knew going in, I'm like, look, that first three minutes is going to be, he's going to throw everything at me. And after that, he's not going to be able to, like, I know you can't keep that up. Uh, I know the way I fight. I'm a pressure fighter. I'm in your face. Uh, you know, I might not have the highest work rate, but I'll have a high work rate that won't slow down. And uh, so I knew I had to get to that point where he was a little bit tired and his size would matter. That's what I was sort of I was planning in my head, and it, 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 especially when it all went exactly as I thought. You know, like when I, it, I, I, there was nothing that was like, oh, okay, this is out of what I was expecting. No, it was all I was expecting. It was, okay, be on him, make him feel comfortable, let him do all his antics, and then when he slows down, like get back on him again. And uh, that's how it went. It is how it went, and, and it was perfectly as planned, but let's talk a little bit now about something that didn't go perfectly as planned. You were supposed to fight last April to follow it up, to sort of, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, build on that win, build on that Michelle Pereira, you know, domination against the guy who comes in highly touted, and then obviously the pandemic hits, and, and we don't get to see you fight for, you know, now it's going to be almost a year to the date that your last fight was scheduled even, you know, and obviously yeah. more than that since you last fought. What, what has it been like in, in that year plus? Oh, uh, those years, obviously, it's been, it's been crazy. I mean, it's obviously been crazy for everyone, but, uh, yeah, we, you know, I was getting ready. I was feeling, feeling good. And when the pandemic hit, I was actually, uh, I was down in, in Vegas. I'm in Vegas right now. And I was down there in Vegas then as well. And uh, every sport was getting canceled. And, but the UFC was still, no, we're going, we're going, we're going. Everyone down, everyone was starting to go home and leave. All the, the foreign fighters here were all starting to take off. And I was, I was hell-bent on just, like, waiting. I'm like, you know what? I'm already in the States. Let's wait it out. It's only three weeks away. And then finally, everything got canceled, and I, I got sent home. And uh, that began sort of the whirlwind of uh, the rest of the year. So, you know, pandemic hit. Uh, my wife was pregnant at the time. Uh, and, she, you know, she's not giving birth to our, our baby's now just over nine months old. Um, so that was crazy. You know, that was that was probably the saving grace of this whole thing was the fact that my, my you know, my daughter's being born and healthy and uh, getting to, to, to be a part of that and see uh, that was sort of the one thing that sort of kept me positive in my life because uh, the other side was that I had an injury from a car accident that was kept at bay from the fact that I never stopped training. I was so fit and so strong. My symptoms weren't terrible. Uh, until the pandemic hit and I was in lockdown for two months and it just blew up uh, and I got an MRI and, it, it, you know, it looked like I I probably needed surgery. I tried to rehab it. This is all going through the same time when my wife was at the end of her pregnancy and giving birth. I was in excruciating pain and agony trying to rehab, uh, trying to avoid surgery. And then after about three months, it became clear that you know, my, things were getting worse, not better despite all my efforts and we had to do the operation and then I had to recover from that. Uh, and, uh, and then from there, you know, I have a newborn recovering from surgery. Also the pandemic going on, we had to we were renovating and moving our gym. Um, 
there's just so much going on. And then I, so I came down here to Vegas in January just to, just to reset uh, and get back into shape. And I've been going hard since then and I feel great. And it's, I just cannot wait to get back to, to real life. As they say, like I, this has been over the last 10 years, I haven't had more than, you know, a couple of weeks go by where I haven't been training. Uh, you know, like I, that usually I'm training two times a day on average. If you average it out twice a day, every day, seven days a week. Some days I'm training two, three times a day, four times a day. Some day, you know, one time a day is sort of like my rest day. Usually I don't really take a lot of time off. So going from that to eight months, nine months of absolutely nothing is just weird for me. So I finally feel like I'm back to myself and I'm ready to jump back in there. Well, that's certainly good to hear. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the training and, and a couple other things about, that you said about feeling good. But before we do, you know, you mentioned obviously physical limitations of all that kind of stuff going on with your injuries, the car accident, you know, avoiding the coronavirus, being, you know, left out of the United States or, or heading back to Canada. I, I'm curious, too, about the mental toll of all of that, too, because obviously, like you said, you're a guy who likes to train four times a day if you can and, you know, at least twice a day at the very least. So what was it like in that year off? You know, you said the, the, the congratulations on the birth of your daughter and, and obviously that that's the saving grace, but w- was it hard to get in a professional mindset over that time? Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely harder. Um, but I, I pride myself on my, uh, my mental fortitude and my ability to handle, uh, handle these things. And that's, you know, one of the things that I think separates me from a lot of fighters there's a lot of uh, a lot of guys that are you know absolute killers in the gym, and then it's never sort of come to their own in the in the ring or the cage, and they're just unable to handle these emotions and these uh, you know roller coaster ride. But that's to me that's part of it, and so I really try and look at everything from an outside perspective, like look outwards, looking in, and I try and go, okay, well. You know, there's there's, there's always going to be setbacks. There's always going to be things. You know, is it something you can overcome? I remember when I first got my MRI back uh, and I found out the severity of the the damage that was done. uh, Most doctors would say, or you know, saying retire. It's time. You're you're done. Like this is really, you know, really bad. But that was never a question in my mind. I called my manager and I I texted him and I uh, and I said, you know, I got I got to you have a moment to talk. I got to call you super emotional, obviously. And I called him and I said, the first words in my mouth were, you know, before I tell you any of this, retirement isn't even a word that I know. Like this is not like I, I am going to chase this in every direction that I can uh, until there's absolutely no other choices. And, you know, we found the option. We found the surgery that I needed. We found the surgeon that I needed. We found, uh, you know, it, we, we, I found out what I needed to do to, to keep the ball rolling. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, everything's gone well so far. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm very thankful for that. That's absolutely excellent to hear. Now, you said you feel like you're in good physical shape. i got to ask you a question about the physicality of this because, you know, you fought up a weight class, 170 pounds against Michelle Pereira. Here it is. I, I see you booked for this fight, down a weight class, a place you haven't fought featherweight since 2015 so after all that time away you come in down to weight classes tell me a little bit about what led to that change well so here so usually you know you're getting ready for a fight you're going for a fight you get for a camp uh you know you maybe eat a little more and then you get your next fight and you drop down well 
for me, all I've been thinking about other, you know, than my, my daughter is how do I get back to fighting? What am I going to do? Like everything in my life, uh, has been planning for getting back to the fight. So I, I wasn't just going into a three-month camp. I was going into surgery going, okay, I know that I have a, a time frame after surgery. Surgeon's telling me three months before I can get back to any kind of contact. Like I have to do three months of like absolutely no contact and light contact. for. Um, so I have this time frame, and I'm like, okay, so what can I be doing in these times where I can't be training, I'm like, I can be not eating any food. I can be dieting. I can be, I can be doing like cardio. I can be doing certain strength exercises. And so I, every minute of every day that I had free was being, was preparing for my return. So for months and months, I, when I wasn't able to train hard, I was eating almost nothing. I was fasting 24 hours a day, eating one meal, uh, and I got, you know, like plant because I was like, I think I could make 145, but I don't think I could do it in a camp when I'm training three times a day. It actually gets harder because it's harder to eat even less when you're training more. So I did a lot of the dieting up front before I even got into the point where I could start training. And then I was able to kind of maintain the weight and eat a little more as I pushed myself to get back into fighting shape. And now I'm able to do the final descent without being, you know, 15 pounds heavier than I was, what I was usually walking around at. So I'm leaner than I've ever been. I've, uh, I, I still have, I've kept most of the muscle. It's just that I've, you know, that extra, all, the extra weight that I have, like not that I had a lot, but you know, you can, if you really take the time, you can get a lot more than you think you can off. And it just, it takes commitment and, uh, and not fucking up on your diet and keeping the, you know, your activity level at the right stages for a long, long time. It's not something I can do, especially at 35 years old. I can't do that in two months. It took me six months to get here. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't know that it'll be a long-term thing realistically, uh, but this is kind of a, an attempt. Can I, can I, I know I can make it, but it's going to be after the fight. What happens? Can I maintain this? And I, I would like to, um, but again, this is, it's kind of a test. I'm going to fight this one at featherweight see what happens after that because as I maintain training I eat more you know maybe more muscle comes on I, I don't know what's going to happen I'm kind of sitting in between weight classes if, uh, if you will so uh, we're going to take a stab at it see how it goes and if uh if it if it doesn't seem maintainable after we'll go back up to lightweight but for this one I've, I've it's been eight months of work so I know I'm good for at least one <laughs> absolutely so let's talk a little bit about that fight too before I let you go so you're fighting Pat Sabatini He's a guy making his UFC debut, and obviously, you know, coming off a win over a highly touted guy up a couple of weight classes, was this the type of opponent you were expecting or hoping for? Did you hope for a bigger name, given that you had beaten Pereira? Did you kind of think the layoff was going to leave you pretty much in this spot? What were sort of your thoughts when they first came to you with Sabatini? Uh, well, honestly, he wasn't the first person that came to me with. The first person that came to me with was uh, Elkins, and I was super right. I was like, oh, that's a big name. Uh, that would be great, but I guess the date didn't work for Elton. So it was for me at this point. Uh, it was any opponent, right? Like I, I, I've been down here in Vegas since January. When I first got here, I was I, I wasn't ready to take a fight because that was I had only been training lightly for a couple of months, and I was you know distracted with everything back home. So it was like first month was like, hey, let's let's push, let's let's get into shape, and then let's put a name in there. 
Um, and so it was, I, 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 it was kind of with the UFC, you got to wait for the, you know, you, you kept kind of waiting for them. And I was like, you know, I, I, I don't want to be here for six months. I can't afford just to be here for six months and not fight. So it came down to, well, I need an opponent. And at this point I haven't fought in, in so long. So I was pretty much willing to fight anyone. But I can tell you that this Sabatini, after looking into him, Sabatini's a tough guy, man. Like, he, he's a young, hungry, tough kid. He is not, it's not like it's, it, this is a gimme fight by any means. Um, I think he's the type of guy that's going to do well in the UFC himself. So, uh, it's, and we're both grapplers by, by trade, I'd say. We're both prefer to grapple. So I think it's going to be, a, we're going to, either we're going to completely negate each other in the grappling, it's going to be a striking match, or it's going to be a really, really, a uh, high-level grappling player. So uh, I think we match up really well. I think he's a gamer. I don't think he's going to come and make, make it a boring fight. We're both going to come, and it's going to be super exciting. Well, I think it's going to be super exciting, too, and we really appreciate the time. Once again, fans, this is Tristan Connolly, who fights Pat Sabatini at UFC 261 on April 24th. Tristan, thank you so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. No worries. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Tristan Connolly. I once again am Daniel Gumby Freeland. I am now joined by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, pretty standard UFC weekend last weekend. We had Robert Whitaker, you know, steamrolled Kelvin Gastelum in exactly the way we kind of envisioned it happening. So let's start somewhere else. Let's talk about the freak show that was Jake Paul versus Ben Askren. What a dark, dark day, Gumby, where our beloved sport of MMA looks bad as Ben Askren tries, tries to defend all of really MMA and all of mankind against a Paul brother and gets absolutely mopped in the first round. Uh, we can break this down from a number of levels. Let's start with Askren himself. I get the sense, as I think you do too, that he wasn't really trying, maybe went there to like collect his envelope. But, you know, I also get the sense that he wants to give off the vibe that he wasn't really trying to. And that to me kind of irks me in a way. Like I, I now in retrospect, I wish he did actually put a full camp into it and tried, or was him not trying sort of his like defense out of this because he was always going to lose. Cause let's face it, Ben Askren was never a good striker. And uh, one last thing before I kick it over to you. I'm so sick of people, you know, and really who cares, but like online fans, trolls, the boxing community, you know, these things happen. Connor gets fucking ragdolled by one of the, the greatest boxers of all time. Uh, Jake Paul knocks out Ben Askren. MMA is its own discipline, and it's supposed to be every discipline combined, but it's now sort of evolved into its own discipline the person who dedicates themselves to one thing is always going to beat the person who's coming from another discipline that isn't focused on that one thing. And we see that the inverse almost in the grappling world when an, a professional MMA fighter goes up against someone who only does jiu-jitsu, a professional jiu-jitsu player, they get fucking mopped. We see it all the time. And you and I were one of the, a couple of the few people who said, we actually like Jake Paul's chances because one, he's dedicated to boxing. He's rich as fuck. He's an athletic kid. And Ben Askren was just coming off the couch and he wasn't a good striker to begin with. Oh, the whole thing just makes me so mad. What do you think? So I'm not so mad about it because, you know, like, like you said, I can't talk about the mental state of Ben Askren and how he made the choices he made, but like, Whatever, he made the choices he made. As far as his physical state, it could not be more clear to me that he did not try. He was never interested in trying. 
might he have thrown a couple of rounds of boxing in and maybe done a, a quick camp? Sure. But, like, he didn't put any kind of dedication into it. And I get a sense that regardless of whether or not uh, he he bought all the way into it or not, I, I get a sense that he was going to lose no matter what. Because, like you said, he's been a terrible boxer his whole life. You know, this is a guy who got outboxed by Demian Maya, right? Like, Demian Maya beat him up on the feet. And, and, like, that is a sentence in and of itself. So, like, yeah, you're right. A guy who's got a ton of money and can train however long he wants uh, at boxing, you know, it, it's not surprising that he wins. Is it surprising how he won? Sure, he won a little bit faster than I thought he would have. Uh, you know, he hit him with a good right hand. Good for that. But, like... You know, ultimately, you're you're right. Like, we, we keep seeing these MMA fighters want to do things outside of MMA, and it makes sense. The payday's better in a lot of cases. Um, you know, maybe not in the, the leaving for grappling type things, but, you know, in the in the boxing sense, it certainly is. But you're 100% right. Like, the, the people we're talking about beating MMA fighters in sub-grappling are guys who spend their whole lives doing sub-grappling. Like, it's not surprising that they beat MMA guys. Same with boxing. Like, this dude, all he does is box now. He fought a guy who, you know, probably not boxed for most of his life. What he did was, you know, boxing to set up a takedown and, you know, just had hip surgery. So, like, of course he's going to win, you know. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't think he – I don't feel as devastated as a member of the MMA community, so to speak. You know, like, I don't uh, – maybe it's just because I wasn't surprised. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it was an – I would say it's an unfortunate event if you watched any of the stuff surrounding it, which I didn't. I just got the the updates via Twitter. But it was an unfortunate event, and it's sad that, like, that's what sells money and where Ben Askren can get his paycheck. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm glad he got his bag. Yeah, I'm good. glad for him. I guess – so that's sort of the individual breakdown. And I will say we ran a poll on our Twitter, you know, which former MMA fighter should go uh, Merck Jake Paul. I choose the Irish hand grenade. He's probably like 50 now, but I know he could do it. A lot of fans said uh, Nick Diaz. That'd be perfect because Nick Diaz actually is one of those rare athletes where I actually think Nick or Nate Diaz, that is, um, could go into a grappling, pro grappling, and do okay. I think they could go into pro boxing and do okay. He's about to run a you triathlon, know, guys, I think. He's, I just saw it on Instagram somewhere. I think he's training for a triathlon. I, I, it, there's like a Diaz mindset, and I was going to bring up the triathlon too. They're almost like the triathlon athletes of combat sports in that they're pretty fucking good at like multiple disciplines. They're, you know what I mean? Like, if you were rating them on a video game, they'd be like a 7 out of 10 on every discipline you could think of, except checking leg kicks. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to see, you know, Nick Diaz go in there and, and mop Jake Paul. But, you know, from a business standpoint, and you're right, it really doesn't matter because we all know, like, no one's coming into MMA. And if some of these boxers did, and I don't know if you saw the clip, but, like, someone from Jake Paul's corner was talking disrespectful to Tyron Woodley. Um, and saying he would get worked, and it's like, come on, dude. Like, yeah, you know what, maybe in boxing, and the guy was a pro boxer, maybe in boxing, but, like, if you came into MMA, I mean, Tyron Woodley is going to fucking, you know, suplex you onto the ground, and you're fucked. You're going to get darsed into hell. But that all being said, from a business standpoint, uh, I don't like where this is all headed. That pay-per-view sold a million and a half. Now you have every MMA guy calling out Jake Paul, trying to get their envelope, this probably ends with a Connor Jake Paul match, and I don't even know what I would think of Connor in that boxing match. 
so I don't like that aspect of it. And it also scares me from Dana White seeing it and seeing that it sold a million and a half pay-per-views. This is a man who tried to sell us on CM Punk as a legitimate uh, potential UFC fighter before ever even having an amateur MMA contest, let alone a pro contest at like a lesser league. So that kind of worries me too in a little bit uh, as a traditionalist, as a MMA purist. It's like, Oh, God, what the fuck is the UFC going to do now, seeing how well that pay-per-view did? You know what I will say is my one probably safeguard in in saving grace from that concern? Because that concern hasn't really started to scare me yet. Um, You know, it's definitely a possibility out there. I don't think Conor McGregor is interested in boxing that knucklehead. He's seen how much money he can make elsewhere. I mean, he made far more fighting Floyd Mayweather and would make far more boxing Manny Pacquiao than he would that goober. So... Um, I think probably I'm not as worried about that, but also I will say the fact that the UFC is about to be publicly traded, I think saves us from, uh, becoming that kind of shit show, you know, like that kind of show where like Oscar De La Hoya is all messed up on Coke announcing the thing. And like the UFC can't have that kind of liability running around when you're about to be a publicly traded company. So I think ultimately that is going to save it a little bit. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, this guy rattles off a couple more boxing wins against, what, like a pro football player and maybe a uh, tennis guy, um, and then and then ultimately tries to do MMA. Like, if he tried that, I could see that working. I could see the UFC trying to, to capitalize on that. But as far as, like, the circus aspect of it and Dana White just trying to, like, you know, bring in as many YouTubers as possible, I think luckily the public trading aspect of that is going to save us. Well, let's mark this conversation down, and when, uh, you know, Kevin Hart is fighting, uh, you know, I don't a, know, he, Henry he actually, Cejudo. He actually has a foot in MMA. Did you know that, or did you? was that completely random? That was completely he, random. He's, Kevin Hart? The, yeah, he's, he's uh, I think he's part owner or an investor in uh, PFL, the other ESPN organization now headlined by uh, Anthony Pettis. I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, Kevin Hart owns a piece of it. <laughs> okay, did, wait, but did you say he has a fight? No, no, he has a foot in it. He had a foot in it. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. He's just partly invested. He's not going to fight. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, let's hope not. Uh, all right, <laughs> let's get to our favorite segment on the show. It's Fights, Dogs, Parlays, and we got a big UFC coming up this weekend, UFC 261. We have three title fights to break down, uh, one being a rematch no one asked for, two other ones that are pretty good. But before we get to it, Gumby, one may wonder or ask if any company sponsors this edition of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays. Absolutely. Fights, Dogs, and Parlays brought to you by Maroon Social, M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. So whether you do kickboxing, judo, sambo, jiu-jitsu, or any other martial art, make sure you log your training sessions, leave yourself some notes, tag friends, competitions, and so much more. Once again, download the Maroon Social app wherever it is you download apps. All right, we'll start with the main event, as we are known to do. Uh, Kamaru Usman is a minus 410 favorite to Jorge Masvidal, a plus 330 dog. No one wants this rematch that I know of, maybe casual fans, but we just witnessed Kamaru Usman 50-45 to Masvidal last summer. I, you know, so much in MMA, and I think we've talked about this on the show a lot before, so much of MMA is just seeing different combinations of fighters, almost like, you know, a chef in the kitchen mixing different ingredients or a scientist in a lab mixing different chemicals. 
sometimes you just don't know how two styles are going to mash. And then you finally see it and you say one of two things that went exactly how I thought it would, or that was surprising. Oh, I need to see five more rounds of that because it was so close. I saw these two styles mash, forget the men, forget the names involved, forget the fact that Jorge Masvidal has become somewhat of a celebrity in a lot of ways due to the flying knee over the aforementioned Ben Askren or the baddest motherfucking fucking whatever the fuck title uh, and Usman, a dominant champion. You know, just the two styles alone, it went how we thought it would went last summer. I think it'll go that way again this, this time. And it's just so funny to me to watch the UFC promos for this. Witness the rematch, dot, 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 with no other hook. Just simply <laughs> that. Just please witness the rematch. So I'll throw it to you, obviously, and ask who you think's going to win. Spoiler, Usman. I'll give you my path to victory for Jorge because that's what we do on the show. We want to explore all angles and give the gamblers and serious bettors and hardcore fans, you know, uh, all possibilities here. Um, for me, Masvidal would need to pull off some flying knee shit. Like he'd really need to make it a dogfight, a scrap. Uh, and he, he can't just get pressed up against the cage again. Um, you know, uh, he cannot be taken down. Obviously he did an okay job of keeping it standing. The problem was when he kept it standing in the first fight, Usman was just bullying him. So, you know, again, for me, it's something wild, it's constant movement, it's flying knees, maybe some leg kicks where you throw them and then immediately back off so you don't get taken down. That's the kind of like dirty, scrappy, almost street fight, if you will, that Masvidal would have to pull off. What's your path to victory for Masvidal? I know there's very few. And what do you think of this fight? I think what you said about constant movement is probably the right answer. Uh, I, I don't see him as being the type of guy who is going to knock Kamar Usman out. Um, Kamar, Kamar Usman does have a, a surprisingly good chin. He takes big punches. He took that big punch from Gilbert Burns who can put a, put a man down and, you know, he didn't really look affected by it at all. So I just don't see Jorge Masvidal, and Jorge Masvidal does hit harder than Gilbert Burns. Don't get that word twisted there. You know, like he's he's a very good boxer. I just don't see him getting the openings to do so, and I don't see him, you know, even making good on one of them, being able to do so to Kamar Usman. So yeah, I think the constant movement is the answer there, right? Like he has to be circling constantly. He has to pick apart. He basically has to fight the Conor McGregor fight against Nate Diaz the second time where he's safe the whole time and he manages the distance really well because the minute you don't manage distance well against Kamara Usman, he's got you, right? Like you're up against the cage or you're on the ground. Those are your two options. And he doesn't let you go, you know, and, and for Jorge Masvidal, like, you know, not being able to come in and like willfully wildly trade in like just mix it up. I think is a terrible matchup for him. It was a terrible matchup the first time. It's going to be a terrible matchup the second time. I think he's got to try to pick him apart from the outside and win a decision. And, you know, like winning a decision against Kamara Usman sounds like the worst path to victory you could possibly come up with. But sadly, I, I actually think that that's what Masvidal has to do here. Yeah, I, you just you outlined it perfectly. You know, winning a decision against GSP and Usman, who I view very similarly 
uh, as dominant 170 champions and much the same way they go about their approach, you know, mixing in takedowns when they need to, and also just heavy jab, you know, very good striking, maybe not elite, but very good striking. It's just such a tall order, and you need to keep away from takedowns like me, the person who did the best of going the full five rounds against GSP in his last fight before leaving for a long time was Johnny Hendricks. And, you know, Hendricks was not going to get taken down at will against GSP. I can't say the same against Masvidal against Usman. If Usman falls into trouble, he can rely on that takedown. And uh, Which is why Colby Covington's any... the worst matchup for him, right? Like, and, and I'm, right. I'm not re- ready for that, that rematch yet. Like, I think... Colby just sitting out waiting for the rematch is going to wind up costing him because, you know, we've got other great welterweight matches coming up. But you're 100% right. If you draw the parallels between Kamara Usman and uh, GSP and talking about they need a good defensive wrestler and a good offensive wrestler against them in order to really stifle them, I mean, Colby Covington is his Johnny Hendricks then, is his, his tough out. You know, so many uh, baseball, football, basketball GMs are put on the hot seat after a trade doesn't work out, after, you know, a failed championship campaign. I would just love to ask the UFC matchmakers and brass when this is over and it goes the way we expect, what did we get from this? Why did, why did Masvidal even get this rematch? And what did we all get out of it? You filled a stadium in Florida, Masvidal's from Florida? Okay, I mean, it just, to me, you lose credibility in your matchmaking. I don't know. Just a side note. All right, let's get to something more exciting. Uh, Wiley Zhang, the champion at 115 pounds. Female, uh, a minus 190 favorite to the former champ, Rose Namajunas, a plus 165 dog. The last time we saw Zhang, she was in an absolute war with another former champion, and that, of course, was Joanna Janjacek. Uh, so that was March of last year. So I haven't seen her in about 12, 13 months. Now defending her title as a favorite to Rose Nami Yunus. Rose is coming off a split decision win over Jessica Andrade. She got her win back after losing her title to Andrade via slam, uh, knockout via slam. Now she got her win back in July of 2020. Now fighting for the title again. She was an underdog when she faced Joanna the first time. She's an underdog facing Zhang. Who you got here? Exciting matchup. Yeah, it is an exciting matchup. I'm actually going to go with the challenger. I'm going to go with Rose Namajunas in this fight. And some of it is because of that Joanna Jan Jacek episode or uh, fight. Because, look, Weili Zhang, if you choose to box with her, right? If you choose to exchange, if you choose to let both of you land punches, which is pretty much what Joanna Jan Jacek did. And I'm not saying she threw caution to the wind. I'm not saying she threw all of her defensive striking out of the way, but she was willing to eat one to, to hit one, to land one, right? Like, and in that style of fight, Whaley is going to land the bigger shots, right? Whaley is the strongest 115er I've ever seen in my life. Uh, I put her strength right up there with Tatiana Suarez uh, Jessica Andrade, when she was down at 115, like her power and her strength is incredible. And so if, when you go punch per punch with her, I think that's where Yuan Yan Jacek went wrong is she was willing to eat that punch. So yeah, like I, I didn't like her in that kind of fight, but here's the thing. Rose Nami Yunus doesn't fight that kind of fight, right? Rose Nami Yunus has amazing distance control. Rose Nami Yunus uses her kicks to keep distance in, in the thing that has cost Rose Namajunas occasionally in the past is, like, takedown defense, 
Right, like, I, I mean, and, and you'd have to go all the way back to the Carla Esparza fight for that. I mean, I mean, I guess you could throw the Jessica Andrade fight in there. But, like, Whaley is not really that kind of threat to her. So, like, I, I guess what Whaley wants to do is to get in her space. But I actually think Rose does a good enough job of keeping that space for an extended period of time and winning at least three of these rounds on the outside. Probably the early ones while Whaley tries to figure out range because Rose actually figures out range a lot better than her opponents early on. Yuanian Jacek found that out the hard way, right? Like, Yuanian Jacek had an easy time tagging Whaley Zhang, right? Like, she hit her plenty. She had a tough time hitting Rose. So, yeah, I actually think Rose fighting a a smart distance fight here probably takes a decision. Oh, man, I'm so excited. I'm happy you're taking Rose. I'm leaning... I'm leaning Whaley because I do think this goes to decision. I think you have two really good strikers. Rose, the funkier of the two. Uh, Whaley, I think, more of a classical, uh, you know, striker. Uh, I do like Rose. Should it hit the ground? We have not really seen Whaley tested there. Um, So that's another factor that's intriguing to me. But I do think this goes to decision. And I guess I lean Whaley, but God, it's so close. And I'm happy you're taking Rose because, um, you know, I could maybe see myself on day of fight, just, just switch into that too. But this, I think I'm probably most excited about this one. All right, let's move then to another exciting fight, albeit not as close. Uh, Valentina Shevchenko, 125 women's champion, is a minus 380 favorite. To Jessica Andrade, a plus 315 dog. Now, uh, Andrade is coming off a win over Caitlin Chikagian. Uh, it was a TKO via body punches. She lost to Rose Namajunas and the aforementioned Weili Zhang before that. Uh, beat Rose Namajunas, of course, before that. So she's one and one against Rose. Beat Carolina Kowalkovitz via KO. Beat Tisha Torres via unanimous decision. So other than Zhang and Rose, Andrade has looked great in the UFC now coming up to 125 so maybe not as brutal a weight cut she is definitely a thicker girl um so that's an intriguing part of this but Shevchenko the dominant champion is on a six fight winning streak coming off a unanimous decision win over Jennifer Maya TKO over Caitlin Chukagian so they both have that win in common win over Liz Carmouche the nasty KO head kick over Jessica I the center of the underworld a unanimous decision win over Joanna um, a rear naked choke over Priscilla Cachoeira. So six fight win streak for Valentina, minus three eighty favorite here. I assume you're taking her. Curious to hear the path to victories for Andrade if there are any. So I actually think there are a lot of paths to victory here for Andrade. I would tell you that looking at these odds, if I was forced to pick uh based on the odds, you know, you told me you gave me a hundred bucks and I had to pick one side of it, I actually think I would put that a hundred on Andrade. Um while, you know, the 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 likelihood of her winning is low. I don't think it's over plus 300 low because let's face it, if Shevchenko in her last fight out gave up a takedown to Jennifer Maya and probably lost a round to Jennifer Maya early on, right? And, and that's sort of shocking because Jennifer Maya, not a particularly strong wrestler. Uh, she could have jujitsu, but I wasn't ready for her wrestling to work against uh, Shevchenko. So, Andrade is way stronger than that. I've been impressed in how she looked at 125 in that Chokagian fight. Um, I'm not going to pick her straight up because I do think, you know, apart from her power landing early, I don't think there's much else there. Um, you know, like, I don't I don't think 
anything more than her power or her wrestling is going to work. And even if her wrestling works early, I don't think it's going to work late because I think she's going to tire. So I'm going to take Valentina Shevchenko probably by either getting a late stoppage when Andrade gets real tired or just winning the later rounds of this fight. But I think the path here for Andrade is mix in enough of the wrestling that she can do damage on the ground and win some of the earlier rounds. Um, and also get her thinking, so possibly that you can land that big blow, because she does have crazy power for a woman of her size. All right, fair enough. Um, let's move then to our... Oh, we'll go with our dog of the week. It's Tristan Connolly, a plus 190, so a, a dog, a sizable dog at that. But picking him over Pat Sabatini, why? So first of all, Tristan Connolly has been away for a year and a half, and I think that's part of the reason why these odds come in where they are. But a year and a half ago, he fought at welterweight against Michelle per- or, uh, Mich- Michelle Pereira, the giant, flippy, crazy welterweight who later went on to essentially beat Diego Sanchez and you know, continue to look fairly phenomenal at welterweight. And Tristan Connolly came up from 155 pounds and manhandled him. He wrestled him up. He held him down. His wrestling looks stellar. In that year and a half away, Tristan Connolly has been dieting really well. He's gotten even stronger. And he's going down two weight classes from there. Now, it's not a two-weight class cut because he was at lightweight. And he did take time off to do it the right way. So we're going to see him at 145 pounds. And I just can't imagine Pat Sabatini, a guy who pretty much gets by on his offensive grappling and being on top in wrestling situations is going to have any chances of that against Tristan Connolly down at featherweight unless Connolly gets really tired. And, and I think that time away, he's clearly done it the right way. And at plus 190, just seeing him control somebody again in what might not be the most exciting matchup, you know, it might be a kind of a grinder. I, I still think plus 190 is a great number to see him at. Our parlay to play is Brandon Allen, a minus 130, and Jimmy Crude, a minus 185. So two favorites. Pair them together. Both get a win. You're going to get plus 175 odds. Breaker down. So Brandon Allen is my pick here, mostly because if you look at his, his time in the UFC, he looks really good against guys who can't stop his takedowns, right? He's undefeated. He's 3-0. and He's got a win before he came to the UFC against uh, uh, Kevin Holland, and he did it. Pretty much the way you beat Kevin Holland, right? Like, he's a good grappler. He's got great top game, and he's got good subs. So, uh, you know, he's going to be fighting Carl Roberson here. And Roberson just doesn't strike me as the type of guy who's going to be able to defend enough of those takedowns. You know, uh, basically, Glover Teixeira wrote the blueprint on how to beat Carl Roberson, and it's a blueprint that fits Brendan Allen's game quite well. So I expect him to follow that. Jimmy Crude against Anthony Smith here. First of all, I just think Jimmy Crude is one of the more underrated light heavyweights in the world right now. And second of all, if you look at the, again, the type of people who are beating Anthony Smith, they're kind of like Jimmy Crew, right? Like Glover Teixeira, again, kind of wrote the blueprint on how to beat Anthony Smith by taking him down, beating the hell out of him on the ground. And he's not the only one to have done that. So, I, I mean, I, I think Jimmy Crew's grappling and offensive wrestling here is plenty. I don't think Anthony Smith's sub game particularly worries me against a guy like Crew, who's got great sub offense, great sub defense. So I love these two together, both as just kind of like grappling grinders with sub-possibilities, and getting them both at plus 175 uh, as a parlay seems pretty sweet to me. Boom. So that's our dog, that's our parlay, that's our fight breakdown, that's fights, dogs, and parlays. We hope you enjoyed it. Follow along during the show this weekend. We'll be live tweeting at Top Turtle MMA, and write us a review, why don't you? 
on iTunes. That would really help out the show out. Help keep the lights on at the Top Turtle Podcast Studio. Boom. Gumby, this train is rolling along. Choo-choo. Where should we go next? And we're going to transition now to my interview with Jeff Molina. As I said at the top of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, those weird cancellations he had after he got the contract, preparing from a for a Chinese fighter that you really have no film on and all kinds of other stuff. And you can listen to that interview right now. All right, and joining me today is Jeff Molina, who fights Kwai Lang Aori at UFC 261 on April 24th. So, Jeff, I want to start with with your debut, and and granted, this is technically your debut, but you were supposed to make your UFC debut on January 20th, obviously got pulled for medical reasons, got COVID. How disappointed were you when you found that out and knew that you would have to wait? Man, uh, to be honest with you, I was was extremely disappointed. Uh, My debut was actually set for November 14th. Uh, I was scheduled against the route uh, for that date. He ended up getting COVID about three weeks out from the fight. That was a bummer. Um, they rescheduled it for January 20th, and then I caught COVID a couple weeks out from the fight. And, uh, yeah, man, it was just uh, one thing after another and, you know, back-to-back camps, and it sucked, you know. Uh, but that, that's kind of part of the fight game. It's like adapt and overcome. And I just kind of had to look at the bright side, and it's like, hey, man, like I'm still in the UFC. I'm not losing my contract. It's 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 going to happen, and you just kind of got to roll with the punches and, and adapt and overcome. Absolutely. And now I want to ask you about the training camp, too, because, you know, like you mentioned, you had back-to-back training camps, but but obviously you can't necessarily train the same way you do when you're recovering from COVID. So what what has this training camp been like now that it feels like you've almost had, you know, it seems like seven months of training camp at this point in time uh, with a little gap in the middle? What, what has it all been like to you? Uh, man, this training camp, it's, it's been about, uh, by the time I fly, I think it'd be 11 and 11 weeks, 11 weekish. <laughs> um, so it's been, it's been long, man, but it's also been really good. Um, it's, it's more, uh, I'm able to, uh, usually in camp, you're just fine tuning things and getting in shape and, and working on the game plan and you're not really getting better, but this past camp, man, um, this one in particular, it's, it's been a lot of growing since uh, the camps have been back-to-back, so I was already kind of in shape. So just been a lot of uh, growing as a fighter and getting better everywhere, and I'm excited to, to put on a performance and show the improvements. And, and I wanted to ask you, too, about your camp, because obviously James Krause has began getting, you know, probably the recognition we all think he's deserved for a really long time, for those who, who know what he does. Uh, but but he's he's now getting it nationally. He's now getting that recognition. What what about working with James Krause seems to work so well, you know, as a camp as a whole? And, and maybe how about what helps you the most about what he does? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, James Krause is an extraordinary coach, and and uh, you know, and from coaching aside, like he's just an awesome person, man. Like I look up to him as a role model, mentor, uh, big brother type figure, and. As a coach, the the way he's the he's formed a an environment in, in the gym um, that's just like nothing I've, I've never seen before, man. Like, and, and that's all credit to him um, as as a coach and a leader. And he just uh, he's he's someone that doesn't lead from the sidelines, man. This guy is in the what we call like the trenches with us every day. He's doing the practices with us. He's teaching the practices. He he's doing the live rounds. He's not only doing those, but he's also taking fights. He's taking fights on a week's notice, a day's notice. 
uh, going up in weight. So it's, I've always had a hard time taking uh, coaching advice from someone that's not battle tested. Right. So like if your personal trainer's obese, like I have a problem with that. Like, <laughs> uh, and James is just like the perfect example of leading from, from like leading the pack from the, the front, you know, he's, uh, his ability to, to break down techniques, I, I think, is second to none. Like, I've never uh, had a coach that, that's able to break down techniques and and dozens of ways to – one of those ways is going to click with you. So he's just able to find which way it clicks with you, and that's what works. And as far as our relationship uh, from, like, coach and student, um, I, I think the reason I, I've been able to develop uh, drastically in the last couple of years uh, with James is because our styles mesh like so well. Like I think we're very similar and uh, he's always had that creative free flowing uh, style that, that I have. And we're just able to kind of bounce ideas off each other and, and uh, grow, grow together. And, and I think that's why uh, him and I mesh so well uh, from a fighting aspect and, and why I've gotten so much, so much better in the past couple of years. That, that certainly makes a lot of sense to me. Now, I'm curious, too, because, you know, when people change camps and change to a different coach or change to a different place, sometimes there's growing pains. Do you feel like when you started working with Kraus, you know, as your head coach, that things clicked right away? Did you feel all of this stuff immediately? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I made the full-time switch over to, uh, to Glory, I want to say, about three and a half, um, maybe four years ago. Um Prior to that, I'd done cross training at Glory, and I always had been a big fan of a, of, of Kraus, um, just growing up in in, in, in Kansas City. And uh, funny enough, there's actually a picture of me after my very first kickboxing fight. Um, I think I was 15, or maybe just turned 16. And uh, I still got braces on my face, and I saw Kraus at the event. I think he was cornering somebody, and I just won, and I asked for a picture. So. Uh, I've always known Kraus and actually Kraus was ref for one of my kickboxing fights. So again, I was like 16 or 17, um, right before the fight, I, I noticed Kraus was about to, to be the ref. Uh, I think the promoter had asked since it was like an exhibition bout. And, uh, I was like, dude, I have to throw a car roll kick. Like James <laughs> Kraus, that used to be his thing. He's throw it and, uh, he's thrown it in multiple fights back in the day. Um, and I was like, I have to throw a car roll kick. So. I think it was mid-second round, or maybe mid-first round, I threw a cartwheel kick just as a homage to to, to Kraus. But, yeah, man, um, I've known Kraus for a while, and, uh, like, cross-training with him in the past, like, I've known how good of a coach he was, and it, it was just the right move for, for my career. And, uh, man, uh, the, my actual old coach is now a coach at that gym. So the the, the guy I started with, Jason High, who I've known since I was 14, 15, um, is actually now still my coach and, and coaches at Glory MMA. That, so that's obviously a great setup for you. Now, I'm curious, too, because I knew you had had a long amateur MMA career as well. You know, you started your amateur MMA career back in 2015. You know, you're only 23 years old, so, you know, you've been in the sport for a really long time. I wasn't aware that you had been kickboxing since you were a brace-faced 15-year-old, so... Tell tell me about how you got into fighting so young. Like, what what led you to decide? Had you always known that you you wanted to punch people in the face for the living? But uh, you know, like, wh when did this start? Yeah, yeah, um, man, it started from a really early age. And the more I get asked this, uh, the more things come to mind. Like, I've always been interested in combat sports, um, or just combat in general, from watching like. 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to watching like Jackie Chan flicks. And um, my parents growing up uh, couldn't afford to, to put us into martial arts classes, but they would uh, do like the weekly month trials, sometimes week trials, sometimes month trials that some of these like uh, karate taekwondo schools have. So I used to live in Jersey and I swear like within an hour radius where we lived, we pretty much hit up all those taekwondo, karate, kung fu schools for the, the week or whatever the trials were. Um, and then when we moved to Kansas, my, uh, my older cousin, uh, started paying for Kung Fu classes. Um, so we did Kung Fu, for, I did Kung Fu from the age of like nine and a half until about 14 and a half. And I, I got my black belt in uh Wing Chun Kung Fu. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, man, I loved it. And, but kind of, kind of was growing out of it, kind of was becoming a, a rebellious teen and, and starting to be an, uh, an asshole. And, and, uh, one day I saw the UFC on, on TV and I was like, I want to do that, man. I was over at my buddy's house and his dad was watching the fights and I saw it on TV and I was like, that looks like fun. That looks like what I want to do. And Googled MMA gym near me and, and the rest is kind of, kind of history. Well, so let, let's talk about that history too. Cause now you're going to get a chance to finally step into the cage after all of this weight, I'm curious because you you get this opponent now. It's not the person you've been booked with twice and you've done a fight camp for twice and and Zaruk Adeshev. But you're getting instead a a guy who's new to the UFC. Nobody knows all that much about. He's mostly only fought in the the Chinese regional circuit in in Quilang Aori. What what were sort of your thoughts when they offered you him? And and how how did you feel about, you know, basically having an unknown face to fight? Yeah, uh, you know, I wasn't too... um too bothered by the fact that that it was his debut or there's a lot of unknowns with him um hard to find film on him um you know I, I told i told james this but like i'll say yes to whatever he agrees to so you don't even have to ask me with the opponent as long as you like it i like it and we're, we're good to go like you can sign on the dotted line for me just just tell me the the name and the date and uh i'll, I'll be there um but he, he's 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 talented man um uh, he's he's fought some tough dudes and I think he loses to the good people and I think he wins against the the bomb so um I, I I he does have a experienced record but if you count all the fights I've had since I was 15 I, I have the, the same amount of experience and honestly uh the same quality of opponents that he's fought in the past that he's won against so uh, I don't think he's been uh battle tested and and uh, don't get me wrong, the dude's skillful, but uh, I think I'm just better than him everywhere. And, um, again, like, I'm just excited to, to have my debut and be able to uh, show what I've been working on. Absolutely. And before I let my fighters go, I, I like to ask them each and every time for a prediction. So how do you see this one going down April 24th? Man, I see a, a late second-round finish. It's kind of the one that's been reoccurring in my head. Um don't know if it'll be a sub, uh, TKO or KO, but I do see a late second round finish. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. This is Jeff Molina, who fights Kwilang Aori at UFC 261, April 24th. Jeff, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem, brother. Thanks for having me. And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. We couldn't do what we do without you guys. We also want to thank our mothership, CageSidePress.com, as well as our sponsors, Maroon Social and Better Than Vegas. 
As a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Top Turtle MMA. And make sure wherever you're listening to this podcast, you like, subscribe, leave us a friendly comment. We really do appreciate it. I once again am Daniel Gumby Greenland. He's Shockwave Dave Tremonte. And we will catch you next week.